Hello and welcome to Crisis of Faith with Joe and Drew. We're so excited that you're hanging out with us today, giving us a little bit of your time. Uh, you are joining us on the third from the last episode of... It's a really confusing way of saying it, isn't it? How, how do I get there? I have two... We have two episodes after this one. Oh, God. Um, well, we're joined today by Justin L. Pearl... Um, who is the director of the Adkins Center for Ethics at Carlo University, uh, because we got into some really, really deep water talking about violent protests, and we thought, well, let's bring in a friend, um, a friend who actually has serious beef with uh, Thomas J. Ord concerning our podcast anyways. He's trying to dethrone him as being the most frequent uh, re recurring guest, so he's happy to take the call. And we get into some really, really great conversations about um, what role violence plays in rioting and protests and real change happening in the world. After today's episode, we have two episodes left in season two of Crisis of Faith. Uh, and we are so excited for you to hear those as well. We'll be revisiting our predictions episode from last year. So if you haven't checked that out, go back and find Prophesied everything that was going to happen in 2021. And uh, after our review of that episode, we are then going to do another episode where we predict and prophesy everything that we believe is going to happen in 2022. So, a lot of fun left in the last couple of weeks of 2021. And then we will uh, start planning for season three. Alright, here's our Jesus jingle, followed by a wonderful interview with Justin L. Pearl. Preacher, it's Jesus, a white guy, and does he really hate everyone who is gay? Does he turn up his nose before he bombs all his foes? Is he a member of the NRA? Preacher, does Jesus really care if the poor can't find enough scraps? Or does he say, suck it up, son, look at how good I've done by just pulling on my designer boots? Yeah, just I'm just excited to uh, to be here uh, attempting to dethrone Thomas Ord from being your your, your oh, most right. you know I, I I think this is this is now going to be my battle with this person I've never met. Um, <laughs> he, he seems nice, but I'm I'm coming for you. Uh, what is it, Tommy Double O? As you call him? <laughs> yeah, nice. nice guys are the easiest ones to take down. I mean that's. <laughs> He's a good target. Um, let me look and see. Joe, I'll check real quick just to see if I have anything that would be a little more general um, to get us started. They just named a battleship after Harvey Milk. <laughs> really? That's interesting. That's what I was on Facebook talking about before I came in. <laughs> yeah, they were like, oh, this like gay rights activist. We should we should name this thing that we use to blow up brown people after him. Um, there's like, there's that, that meme, uh, where, where it's, um, it says Republicans and it's, um, uh, a plane, like a bomber bombing, uh, and then below it, it's, it says Democrats and it's the exact same plane, except that somebody badly Photoshopped, um, like black lives matter and, and like a rainbow flag onto it and it's yeah. still bombing. Um, and, uh, it's like, yeah, well they literally, they, they did it <laughs> like satire is dead because it's all literal now. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, uh, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell, 
that uh, did a, a pretty deep dive study on the idea that satire um, just does not have the intended effect anymore um, just because of the way that people consume their news and their media and everything like they can't they can't tell the difference so his story like he covered a lot of Stephen Colbert like the the uh, the Colbert report and he was basically like this had almost as many fans of Bill O'Reilly <laughs> who couldn't tell like especially whenever you not not necessarily watching the show from start to finish but taking like um talking head points you know the, these little like sound bites and things and throwing them out into the world he's saying things that people are just like i don't care if it's satire or not he's saying what i feel in my heart and uh, so. yeah i think this is part of the reason you know there was when the daily show transferred over to trevor noah um, I think for a lot of people, it was, it was kind of an unsatisfying transition. And at least, you know, I guess I'll just speak for myself. Uh, I didn't really like it that much. I like Trevor Noah. He's like, a, he's a funny guy. He seems like yeah. a cool guy. Um, and it just didn't work. And I think it was less to do with him and like that John Stewart had some sort of a special sauce uh, as much as it was that that type of comedy worked really good in the bush era and just doesn't really work anymore um and i think that's part of the reason you're seeing that like trevor noah has has been you know in some ways more successful during the pandemic than he was before the pandemic uh because what the pandemic forced him to do was change change that the format quite a bit yeah. uh, and i think it's it forced him into a new kind of format that was was more appropriate for for the the sort of times we find ourselves in now it's true. There is a there's a lot to be said about all of this, and some of it I think even could kind of lead us into some of what I would love to hear your thoughts on today. Yeah. So we've been talking about uh, in part of our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we've been talking about Jesus's um, injunctions to not resist evil, and then you know we looked at a couple of in the last two weeks we looked at a couple of like specific things turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, um, and talked about how these are at least one way of reading this passage the way that, that I think is probably most appropriate is that these are examples of creative, nonviolent resistance. Um, and that's been, you know, that's been a part of the best parts of the Christian tradition for a while. Um, you know, I think one of the shining examples, of course, is um, Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement that really employed this kind of um, creative, nonviolent, it's real resistance, but it's not taking up arms. Um, and so, I mean, here we are, we're trying to figure out, Drew and I, uh, all this time have been trying to figure out, like, do we follow Jesus? Um, what do we actually think about what he has to say? And this is one place where I want to say, yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, I, I'm on board with Jesus and creative nonviolent resistance. Um, but then I get really pissed off because every time I talk to particularly conservative evangelicals about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement or racial justice in general, racial injustice generally, um, they always want to say, well, yeah, but they uh, broke the windows of the target, <laughs> you know, and it's just really fucking obnoxious because it changes, especially in that voice. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they all speak in that voice. It's terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it changes the like, okay, we can't have any conversation about racial justice because instead we have to talk about smashed windows. Like, I think that's super obnoxious. Um, and so that, that makes me want to maybe leave a path for thinking about, are there places where certain kinds of violence are necessary? And, uh, Dr. Pearl here is one of these people who really, um, is an advocate of this who thinks that there's a, a space for violent resistance at certain points. Um, right. I think that's, that seems true. Um, yes, yes. And no, I, I think that, um, I think that the terms of this debate are so deeply, deeply confused that it's, it's really hard. So depending on what you mean by that, yes or no, um, if that makes sense. And I think it ultimately, it comes down to this question of what is violence. And this is, this is the place where I think the terms of the debate are totally confused. Like what is violence? Is breaking a window violence? I think is really the question. Is burning down a target violence? Um, and this is something where my mind um, has has been shifting on these sorts of questions. Um, so, you know, if you had asked me on to speak about this, you know, maybe three or four years ago, um, what I probably would have said would have been something like, um, we need to be wary of the idea that violence as such is bad. And we need to start distinguishing between certain types of violence. Um, but I think, uh, you know, so so I might want to say, you know, when you when you burn down a target, that is violence. But I think it's, you know, that maybe it was justified violence. You know, not in every circumstance. Uh, don't worry, <laughs> target. Um, but you know that uh, that there are specific instances where where property destruction in protest movements is a justifiable form of um, of response to real harm. Um, and my my sh my thoughts on this have, have have been shifting a little bit, uh, and this is mostly comes down to uh, some you know just really long discussions I've had with an expert in this field, um, a guy by the name of Jordan Miller, um, who really wants to insist that um, that this is the wrong approach, um, and I and I I now think he's right, and what he wants to say is we really need to ask the question what is violence. Um, and what isn't violence. And his approach to this is he, he wants to agree that there are times when smashing a window is part of a justifiable action, but he wants to simply say, that's not violence. Mm -hmm. And that what we do, what we tend to do in our rhetoric is we conflate the destruction of property with the, with the harm against people in order to delegitimize um, people who are being actively harmed. So, you know, uh, black Americans who are being murdered in the street. We don't have to worry about that because that has been delegitimized. And yet, you know, the broken windows that has been has been lifted up. And those are now treated as equal to, to destroy property and to destroy lives is treated as synonymous. And he really wants to separate those and say, no, when we talk about violence, we should be talking, we should be talking somewhat narrowly about harm against people. And I think there are good reasons to want to restrict it. So when I say something like, I think rioting is sometimes a justifiable response to injustice. I would argue that rioting is in the toolkit of nonviolent resistance rather than in the toolkit of violent resistance. So, I mean, what about, um, <clears throat> you know, it's hard to think of target as like a victim here. 
but I mean, you can imagine sort of, and, and there, of course, have been examples of this uh, kind of independently owned mom and pop kind of shops that are damaged and looted, uh, sometimes even within black communities. And like, is that a kind of, even if it's not an attack on a body, um, it is an attack on a person's financial stability. Um, and so I wonder, like, how, how do you um, navigate that in terms of its uh, connection to, to violence? Yeah, and, and I think that's right. And, and what you said is literally, that was my, my initial response to Jordan, um, was to say precisely that. Um, you know, I'm thinking here of the way that uh, economic sanctions function, I think is a really good example of this. So, um, you know, major um, sort of stifling economic sanctions are leveled against Iran. And so we have these debates, you know, should we go to war with Iran or not and blah, blah, blah. And there's all this, you know, this this attempt to stir up hate and anger um, against uh, Iran, particularly um, a few years ago. Um, and I think part of the response to that, I think a legitimate response, which I recognize somewhat clashes with what I just said, is to say, well, in a certain sense, we already are at war with Iran, right? Because we are killing people and we're killing them through economic sanctions. So that there are ways in which violence can be undertaken um, without, uh, you know, th through the use of property or property destruction or economics. There are, there are ways in, in which that is the case. And so my claim here is not to suggest that, you know, protest movements never include violence within them. I think that's right. But I think what we should do is we should avoid the categorical claim that the destruction of property is the same thing as violence. To smash the windows of a Starbucks is not the same kind of violence as an economic sanction uh, that cripples, impoverishes, and starves to death an entire population. Those are, are fundamentally different. So I think the question is, is to ask, um, when is violence happening and when is it not? And when we talk about you know, rioting or property destruction or things along these lines, um, there's always going to be both. Um, there's, you know, scholars of, of this. So I, I hosted an event through my, through my job where we brought in some experts on property destruction and rioting. Um, and uh, and we're, we're talking to people who are doing sociological research, um, uh, a scholar by the name of Ben Case. Uh, and he says, if you want to think of something like property, of rioting or property damage or, or something like that as violence, then there has never been a nonviolent revolt ever, full stop. It has never happened. Um, the civil rights movement, they burned things, they smashed windows, they did a lot of property destruction as part of that movement. You know, the supporters of Gandhi, you know, disrupted, broke things, shut down economies. There, if, if we expand the notion of violence that big, then we simply have to erase nonviolence. It's no longer an option um, because it's never happened. I think, that, think raises, that raises a a question for me that might be I'm just going to ask it as a question, okay? I'm trying my best not to inject an opinion here because I actually don't know that I have one. I, I don't know where I stand on this. It's more of a pragmatic question. Um, if we were to include all of that as violence, if we were to say, like, well, you can't, there can't be any um, physical expression of anger and rage and, you know, protest, the, the thing starts to become... <laughs> Does it work without some kind of violence? I mean, does the civil rights movement happen if you only have Martin Luther King Jr. and you don't have the Black Panthers, for instance, or you know other 
militant kind of uh, aggression happen? <laughs> like, does fear ever, can you ever actually change oppression without some degree of fear put on the oppressor? Like, oh, if we don't do something, they're going to turn society upside down. Um, so that there's almost always this like, I don't know. Again, I, I'm, I'm trying not to say like, I'm not in defense of either thing here as much as I'm just saying very pragmatically without some kind of violent air quote for the listener uh, expression, does it even work? Is there any pragmatic step that we can expect to take? Yeah. So, you know, you think of somebody like Lyndon B. Johnson, um, you know, uh, passes this, you know, groundbreaking uh, or, or, you know, signs into law, this groundbreaking civil rights legislation. Um, did he want to do that? <laughs> um, yeah. The answer for any historian, you know, other than I, I think slightly delusional ones is, of course he didn't. Uh, Lyndon D. Johnson is, was a terrible, terrible man. Uh, he was a bad dude, but he did it. Why? Because he felt pressure to do it. Um, that the civil rights movement was putting on pressure. It was about it was about organizing in order to exert pressure, and that's really how change generally happens. Um, and the way the civil rights movement exerted pressure was that you had MLK um, and uh, the southern, you know, the southern Southern Poverty Law Center, and and like that that crew. Um, and then, like you said, you had the more militant ends, and to a certain extent, in, and I think MLK knew this. Like he he was he was a really smart guy, right? Like he understood these dynamics in, 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 um, in really complex and nuanced ways that he recognized that part of his ability to be successful uh, and to get his demands met was his ability to basically say something like, you can deal with me or you can deal with the people with guns. Those are your two options. So you can ignore me and my demands that, you know, you pass some legislation, but the guns come next. Um, and so you need to recognize that. And, and I think that's, that's the reality in every situation. And so I think there can be this um, uh, pragmatically really hard situation, you know, I think particularly for religiously minded folks who, who want um, a sort of purified protest movement. Um, that is purely nonviolent um, and 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 I think ultimately passive in a certain sense. Uh, and I think pragmatically, it's not really possible, um, which I realize, you know, um, might sound a little bit bleak, but I think that's also the reality of the situation that we find ourselves at. Politics is about organizing and moving power. Um, and power is can be really scary. So, um, if we could circle back to Jesus, I think two points uh, that are at odds with one another, but both relevant. Um, one is, you know, now that I'm thinking about, uh, I had offered, you know, smashing windows of stores as violence at, against somebody's financial stability. But even in the things that we talked about last time, I mean, there's this um, injunction to go the second mile which we, we already have described as um, placing the Roman soldier who's forcing you to carry his pack a single one mile, which he's you know legally permitted to do, that you're actually putting him in a situation now where he um, is in danger of getting like harsh penalties and maybe even losing his job and this sort of thing by going the second mile. So, that, I mean, there is that since even in Jesus's creative nonviolence, that if you use violence uh, in this really broad term that includes 
smashing windows, well, then even Jesus is proposing some some sense of violence there. Um, and I, mean, I think even in the case of, you know, um, you know, give, you know, the basic the idea, Walter Wink's idea that that the, the claim, you know, give your code, et cetera, et cetera, that this is about basically like stripping down, you know, in the courtroom and being like, you're going to now have to face uh, the reality of, of what you're doing. You know, what is that doing? That is putting a deep social stigma on somebody. And yeah. the idea that that kind of social stigma wouldn't have economic ramifications. Uh, is anyone going to want to work with that person? Is anyone going to want to do business with that person? Well, That's maybe true. not. Um, that, Super that aggressive. Real, real social um, uh, effects for someone. Well, and, it's, and at I the very least, it's really aggressive to like strip down in the courtroom, right? Yeah. And I mean, ideally, uh, I don't know that this is necessarily going through the head of every protester when they smash a window or whatever, loot or, or something like that. But ideally, what is happening here is, especially in a capitalistic society like ours, well, Target has a lot more power than the individual here. Starbucks has a lot more power than the individual. Even a uh, small mom and pop um, business owner has more power than the individual. So bringing them into the argument, kind of forcing them into the, hey, this is the system, this is the structure, you are perhaps benefiting from it, if not just completely ignoring it, we're going to make it impossible for you to ignore what we're saying and what's happening here. So that, I mean, again, ideally what happens as a result of Target's windows being smashed, is Target now says, "Hey, can we do something about these pe like these people are saying something? They're destroying our property. Can you give them what they want so they'll stop? Like, can, like you're that's kind of I think something that, and I think that's what Jesus seems to be getting at too is this idea that we're forcing. Again, I mean, defining violence here is really murky." Um, but we're using some kind of violent force, some kind of aggressive force to to make other people who don't seem to care about the oppression, don't seem to care about the problems, to force them to care is is really the goal. Yeah, I mean, in, in his letter to a Birmingham jail, um, MLK is really explicit. He says, what is the goal of direct action? Um, and he says the goal of direct action is to provoke a crisis and to increase tension. That's that's what he he saw. And so you know, because people would 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 come back and they'd be like, "But you're you're disrupting the normal the you know you're you're being disruptive and you're you're breaking down society and all these things." And his response was, "Yeah, yes, correct. That is exactly what we're doing, and that's what we want to be doing, right? You know, when the the you know the kid from the suburbs." Um, joins the protest movement in in uh, in Pittsburgh in 2020 and climbs on top of a police car and lights it on fire. Um, yeah, he is trying to increase tension. He is trying to provoke crisis. He is not trying to calm things down. Um, and because you know, I think to a certain extent, the the logic here, which I think is correct, is that for communities that are under the threat, the perpetual threat of state violence. Um, they live in tension and they live in crisis. And it's this privileged position to be able to sit outside of that and, and say, well, come into our non-threatened world and in a non-threatening way, ask us politely to not threaten you. 
Um, and, and I think that the response from groups like Black Lives Matter has been, no, we are going to, we are going to turn up the temperature so that the entire country can feel what it feels like to live in an unstable world that we live in every single day. Yeah, that's so well put. And I, I just want to, um, <laughs> hearing that last bit there about, uh, you know, having this non-threatening and, and uh, cordial way of like, come into uh, this discussion. It, it just strikes me as funny that the examples, the main examples that keep coming to mind for me are Target and Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> like we're talking about Barnes and Noble and Panera Bread and like these kind of establishments where we're like, but these are places of peace. I mean, the, the only step up from that would be like if you have an essential oil store somewhere <laughs> in your town and that's being smashed to the ground. Um, we're sort of going to these symbols of white comfort. I mean, honestly, and saying like, no, it's not like that for the people who are trying to get your attention right now. Yeah, in, in 68, MLK did, uh, wrote this great journal article um, where he talks about where he talks about looting, um, and, he, and he, it's called the role of the behavioral scientist in the civil rights movement. So it's basically it was an article written to psychologists and sociologists to think sociologically about what was happening, um, and he was thinking about rioting, and in particular he's thinking about looting. Uh, and I just want to read a line out of this because I, I think it's fascinating. Um, he says the rioters are not seeking to seize territory or to attain control of institutions. Riots are mainly intended to shock the white community. The looting, which is their principal feature, serves many functions. It enables the most enraged and deprived Negro to take hold of consumer goods with the ease the white man does by using his purse. And Damn. yeah, yeah, exactly. Damn. It is this idea that, you know, when what what absolutely enrages us is seeing poor folks, particularly poor folks of color, they're able to walk into a store and walk out with a big screen TV. White people walk into a store and walk out with a big screen TV 365 days a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the idea is, is this is a place where that economic division erodes abruptly and, and, and violently. It, 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 it violently um, deconstructs itself uh, and uh, and suddenly you don't have this economic hierarchy. Goods, goods are now available to everyone. And that is, that is scary for people who sit at the top of that hierarchy in a very comfortable way. We need to make that quote available to all white evangelical churches to post on <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. Day this year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they love to post MLK quotes on that day. That'd be an excellent one. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so let me... I want to push back against another thing. Um, and I want to go back to Jesus because I, you know, you guys keep talking about these worldly things and I want to talk about the Lord. Um, you know, so you said that the point of, or one of the ways that made the civil rights movement, particularly like King's version of the civil rights movement work is that there are guys behind him with guns. Right. And he says, you can deal with me. Um, and I'm looking at at the Jesus movement and going like, well, OK, but he so he he did do this kind of disruption. He goes into the, the temple. He destroys property. Um, and 
you know, like overturns the the money changers tables and uh, gets a whip, makes a whip. Like there's there's some definite uh, violent and aggressive action happening here. Um, but then when it comes down to to the end, I mean, he submits himself to arrest and even to death. Uh, and there are no guns behind him. He tells his people, put your swords away. Um, and, you know, you could also there's a sense in which the Jesus movement didn't politically. Uh, I miss something. Um, I was just showing you a picture. You're wrong. Oh, you're so clearly wrong. <laughs> a white evangelical woman holding a semi-automatic weapon and a Bible. So <laughs> Jesus has plenty of guns behind him. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I mean, yeah, like it doesn't. You could say there's a sense in which the Jesus movement as a political movement didn't bear out. Um, yeah. Unless you take a really long view. <laughs> Any thoughts about that? Um. Yeah, so so I don't I don't know. I, I think the, the so this is something that Christianity has to deal with that Islam doesn't have to deal with uh, in the same way. Um, and it's because their religion was founded by somebody who also ran a state, like they ran a government. And so in, in Islam, you have this idea that there is um, that there is this confluence of religious power and political power. That means that they have always grappled with how these two go together. Um, it's not a coincidence that, you know, contemporary secularity emerged out of a Christian context because it's Christianity that has always in some sense been able to hold apart the religious world and the political world because we worship a religious figure who wasn't a political figure you know there was no it was no president jesus um uh he didn't have he didn't have an army he didn't have all of this and so in in some sense this has provided an opportunity i think for christianity to be able to um stand outside of politics with a prophetic voice at its best um, to be able to speak into that context. Um, but I think it also um, has, it limits Christianity, right? I think it, it, it limits our political um, aspirations or, or this logic um, for thinking about how, how, how we deal with, um, with the political world because we, we don't have a clear direct model as much as we want to 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 think you know of the biblical text as you know uh basic instructions before leaving earth um it doesn't give us very good political instructions um it's it's not very helpful uh in in those sorts of questions you know you've get your romans 13 um these sorts of passages uh that say you know um submit yourselves to authority things along those lines uh, but even those are very clearly um reacting to particular moments and to particular issues you know at this time we need to chill it we need to be you know we need to fly under the political radar here um because we don't want to all end up um we don't all want to end up crucified <laughs> um we even even paul wasn't that interested in taking up his cross um and so and so there are i think this is the place where discernment is necessary. I think when it comes to politics and Christianity, it is a place where we have to engage in hefty levels of discernment because we just don't, we don't have the answers in the text for how to, how to think socially and politically about these big issues. And I think there are places that we can tap into. There are moments of inspiration, you know, somebody like Amos, um, is, is somebody who I turn to a lot, um, because he is somebody who says, 
you know, insists that the religious work that he's doing has to manifest in the political and the economic sphere um, that demands for social justice um, are fundamentally religious and theological demands. And so I don't want to say that there's 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 nothing to be found in this text, um, but there is no clear roadmap for how to think politically in the biblical text. Which is unsatisfying, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. It is, but I mean, this is the, the, this was the other of, I had three questions coming into this and two of them we've covered. I mean, the third one really was this question, does Jesus allow for it? Like just to, to set aside our opinions and thoughts and like even just looking at history and saying like, well, there's plenty of questions to be asked. Like, can you actually change society at large without violence? That's a, that's a different conversation than does Jesus allow for it? Is there any model whatsoever? Is there any space whatsoever for it? And so I think this is a, this is a rich and difficult and at the same time, unsatisfying is the word that comes to mind portion of the discussion. I mean, the only example that we have of like a real in the text thing that I can see with Jesus is the one moment where a disciple of his, perhaps Peter, raises a sword against a Roman guard who has come to take them. So the only time that any member of Jesus's posse, any, any like direct line of influence to Jesus raises a weapon, um, threatens violence against even a an oppressor um, in self-defense, Jesus condemns him for that. Um, and so I think that makes the whole thing pretty sticky and pretty difficult to like, w what can we do with Jesus in the conversation? Um, but at the same time, I just, you know, what we're discovering, the more we talk about Jesus, the more we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, the more we move through this stuff, is it's just, it's, it's almost always, um, forgive me, Mother, and forgive me, Lord, it's always unsatisfying. Like, we're, <laughs> we always come to a point where discernment has to play a role. You have to, you have to take some responsibility for what you do next. You can't just open the Bible and find an answer for what you're supposed to do here. Um, because if you're going to do that with Jesus, then you don't get the civil rights movement. You leave the Holocaust alone. I mean, to some extent, I, am I wrong? Am I, am I missing something to say? That well, I mean, it's like, it's if like if what, you don't, if you don't chase it, if you don't like pull on the thread a little bit, um, and you just do what Jesus does and says, yeah, go ahead. Am I, I was just, it's, it's like what, uh, we talked with Jared bias about. Right. Where if you if you take the Bible like you're on some kind of cooking show and you were to present to the uh, judges, look, here here's the fish you gave me in pristine condition, still on ice. And here is the lemon uncut and, you know, beautifully like you're going to lose that cooking show because the idea is you're supposed to take this stuff and do something with it uh, and that. That's, I mean, the Bible presents us with a lot of really, I mean, obviously, like here we are in episode 60, whatever, about talking about the, like, there's, there's plenty of rich stuff for reflection. Um, but none of it is like just something that we can turn the ingredients around and, and say, here it is. Like, it's, it's rich stuff to take and use. Uh, in our own contexts that are very different. Yeah, I mean, one, 
<laughs> the way I like to think about this, or at least recently that I've been thinking about it, is that um, if we're taking, if, if we want to take the text seriously and we want to avoid the temptation to read our own theology into the text first and foremost always then at a certain point there has to be a rub right like for me the uh, the the way i i've been thinking about this lately is if you agree with a hundred percent of what you find in the biblical text then maybe you aren't actually reading the biblical text maybe you're actually just reading your own ideas again right. um and for me, this is this is the place where that rub comes for me, which is that I, I think like you were suggesting, Drew, um, at least this is how I, I heard you, you know, I think it's very possible that that when you, you know, that if you stay close to the text, you have to say something like Jesus just doesn't open up the possibility for um, for the kinds of political resistance that I personally am interested in. And that I think that there is, is ethical and social and political reasons for supporting. Um, you know, is Jesus going to say it's okay to blow up, you know, a, a cop car in in Pittsburgh or or something like that, or to smash some windows downtown? I don't know. I part of me thinks maybe not. I don't know. You know, I always can go back to you know Jesus in the temple flipping the tables, and 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 there you have that piece. But I think I think that it's very possible that what I ultimately want to say is maybe he doesn't think that's okay. And maybe this is just a place where I simply disagree, um, which is a weird, you know, for, for me, you know, 10 years ago or, or 15 years ago, um, this, that would have been a terrifying thing to have said, you know, as like, a, you know, a, 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 a fresh out of evangelical uh, evangelicalism undergrad, uh, the idea that you were allowed to say, I, I, I just don't think that Jesus was right on this point. Just wasn't a viable option. Yeah, we're gonna cut that. You're actually not allowed to do that on this show. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm I'm a I'm a terrible sinner. Um, but but I think that when we don't allow ourselves to say, even if only tentatively, like maybe Jesus is right, but I for now I can't fully lock into that. Uh, if we don't allow ourselves to do that, what I think we are instead left with is not what we think we're left with which is now I'm doing exactly what Jesus wants. It's I now have a massive um, psychological need uh, or, you know, this, the, this, this sense that I must now change what Jesus means in order to match what I have because it's too psychologically damaging for me to disagree. And so I think that being open to be able to sit in that space and say, I don't know, I kind of think maybe Jesus was a, what you you might call like a, a principled pacifist. I think that might be the case. And I don't think I'm a principled pacifist. Um, I think I think nonviolence is generally strategically the best. Um, but in principle, I don't think we have to uphold that. Um, yeah, I, so I think I just have to sit in that space of, of saying, yeah, I might I might not be on the same page with Jesus on this point. And that is a weird, uncomfortable place to be. Yeah, well, Here's here's my um, because I, I feel like I'm I'm between two spaces. Like it, my options are either that, either to sit exactly where you're sitting, because I feel the same way. I look at the same situation. You know, the the classic example of like, okay, so somebody breaks into my house and comes to attack my children. Am I going to turn the other cheek, or am I going to do everything I can to stop them, even if that means killing them before they kill my family? Like, yeah, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do the latter. I'm gonna do every. <laughs> I'm going to grab every tool I have at my disposal. 
the other option that I see, um, and I feel like it has been a big part of the whole crisis of faith movement for me, is to say, well, context is everything here. So Jesus was never a white guy in the 21st century on the East Coast of the United States dealing with the issues that I'm dealing with. He was a first century, you know, Palestinian Jew or whatever, like in a specific situation. And so the only way that we could actually even pick up and do what he did is if we're in exactly the same position that he's in. So perhaps the reason that whenever Peter raises a sword against the oppressors and Jesus says, put it away, maybe it's not fully being a pacifist. Maybe it's just being strategic and saying, you pull that out right now, all of you die and this story never gets told. It just doesn't matter. We're, we're not going to, your violent action with your two swords that you have, remember whenever they like ask, Jesus says, do you have any swords? And they say, yeah, we have two. And Jesus says, yeah, that should be enough, <laughs> right? <laughs> and every, every gun-toting evangelical I've ever quotes that as their, like their life verse. See, Jesus said, it's definitely good. Like, okay, so against the entire Roman government, Jesus says two swords should be enough. And when one person raises that sword against someone else, he's like, what are you doing? What do you think is going to happen here? So I think there is, at least for me on the days where I still want to follow Jesus and I want to consider myself a Christian, I have that caveat of saying, well, maybe he would give me different advice. Maybe Jesus wouldn't look at me and say, don't store up anything for the future. Uh, maybe, maybe he wouldn't say, maybe he wouldn't look at me and say, don't get married and don't have children or don't like, maybe he was speaking to a specific group of people. I'm saying maybe, I know this is true. He's speaking to a specific group of people in a specific time where that advice makes a lot of sense. And perhaps it is, his advice would be really different for us. And he's yeah, I mean, confused my, by my why mind, we try to pick it up and put it in our thing. My, my mind here though, goes to places where the context is maybe a little less different. Uh, and I want to, you know, think about how to speak into that. So, um, you know, what do we say to West Bank Palestinians right now, right? There are Palestinians who are under a foreign occupying force that is vastly military superior to them, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, damn, that looks an awful lot like Jesus's context. Am I going to go say you are not allowed to resist in a foreign occupier uh, who is, you know, is, is, um, is killing, you know, is, is bombing you and harming you and cutting off access to basic utilities like water. Am I allowed to say to them, uh, well, Jesus says you're not allowed to, because I, I, you know, I've been to Palestine and I've been with those people. And, you know, I was asked this question because I was with a group called Christian peacemaker teams and they heard our name and they said, peacemaker, that's interesting language. Are you saying we don't have a right to defend ourselves? Um, and what, what do I say in that instance? And, you know, what I said was, no, I'm not saying that because I can't, I, I can't imagine saying, well, well, no, like you're not, you, you are not allowed to defend yourself or your family from, from, you know, foreign occupying state oppression. Uh, I can't bring myself to say that. Um, in that situation, you know, it looks a lot, awful lot. Like the fact that Jesus wasn't a zealot, I think is actually really telling. Like there were revolutionary moments in movements in his time that he chose not to align himself with, uh, even if he maybe you know we have at least one instance where it looks like he recruited somebody out of that group. Um, 
but it, it, I think it's important to, to see that that was a viable choice that he didn't make. Like, Unless you read Reza Aslan, who thinks that he was a zealot. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think he's wrong, but, you know, um, yeah, either way. Uh, you know, he could have gone the Maccabean route, route, right? Like, there was a tradition of Jewish messianic figures aligning themselves with the throne of David, taking up the sword, overthrowing, or at least attempting to overthrow occupying powers. That was a viable tradition at the time he was at, and he chose not to do that. Um, And we know it was a viable option because like, you know, 40 years later, they attempted it and it went extremely badly um, as it turned out. Um, But nonetheless, that was viable and he didn't do it, which to me at least, because it's, it's absolutely true that we have to recognize differences in context, but I also think we shouldn't use that as a cop-out to ignore the places where it is clear that, you know, that, that options are not being, are, are, are not being taken that Jesus could have, could have viably taken. So this is kind of, maybe this is a place to end and I actually wish we had done it right up front, but if you don't feel comfortable answering this, we can cut it. Um, So you're an activist. And I'm wondering if you would share what are the protests or actions that you've been involved in that were the most aggressive and what do you see that uh, having accomplished? Yeah. Um, so uh, probably the most, uh, let's call it the most spicy protest movement <laughs> I've been involved in would have been um, when Black Lives Matter sort of, you know, exploded nationally um, in, in 2020. Um, here in Pittsburgh on that the first Saturday um, after, after everything went down. So uh, um, uh, everything sort of kicked off on, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, everyone had been following, you know, the live streams and all of that. Um, you know, we were watching, you know, uh, police precincts burned to the ground you know it was a it was a wild time um and on that saturday you have this massive group that's uh gathered together uh non-violently probably about 1200 people uh that are assembled in downtown pittsburgh and they start marching up towards the hill district uh which is the uh historically black neighborhood um and as they get up uh almost to the hill district uh they encounter a wall of um swat team uh like SWAT team guys with big shields and the whole nine yards. Um, They are, you know, it is a, you will not advance farther than where you are. And so the group starts to build up in tension. Uh, Soon there's a group of, of, you know, six or seven um, police, uh, horse mounted police uh, that come into the crowd uh, and there's a skirmish uh, and people, including friends of mine, you know, are getting like kicked broken legs from police horses and the whole nine yards. Uh, And yet the crowd drives off these horse mounted police. And this is the moment where I arrived to the protest because I was arriving a bit late. And so I show up to see, you know, 1200 people cheering as these, you know, five or six cops are literally being driven out of um, uh, out of the crowd um, by this 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 people power, um, 
And it was, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Soon there was a breakoff group that was going and was shutting down the highway. Uh, and then of course, you know, things really started to take off uh, when there was a, an, a, a couple of abandoned cop cars and people started lighting them on fire. Um, and uh, as it turns out, there's a lot of really like explosive things in cop cars. Um, so suddenly, you know, the tear gas canisters and the bullets and everything in the back of the cars are exploding. And it's like a fireworks show. Um, and for me, this was one of the most impactful moments of my like political life in the sense that to watch a cop car pretty literally explode um, and then to see 1200 people cheer was, I think, was all of the commentary you needed for where our country was at on that day. You know, what does it mean to be an American? Well, there is there is something there is something really bad happening if people are cheering as the cop cars explode. Um, we are learning something about who we are and where we are. Uh, and so, yeah, that, uh, you know, once the cop cars were exploding, um, you know, you had tear gas canisters flying and um, rubber bullets and people getting shot in the face. And, you know, there were a couple of people who lost eyes because they took tear gas canisters to the face. And um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty brutal situation. Yeah, I'm, uh, go ahead. You've oh, no, go for it, go for it. I was just, I was just thinking, uh, I mean, it's an incredible example. I mean, I think we all have kind of, whether we participated or not, have stories to tell about that, where we can kind of look at and say, here's what happened, and we're still talking about it, and it things have begun to change. But I was thinking, as soon as you started, because Joe mentioned, he was like, I wish we had said this up front, I, it would have been so good if you said, well, probably the most effective thing I feel like I've ever done is whenever I raided the Capitol, I stole AOT's <laughs> leftovers from the refrigerator and I pooped in Nancy Pelosi's desk. And that has brought about the change. Wouldn't that have been good for our crisis gen listeners who leaned in for the last hour to just hit them with that at the end? Uh. And, and, and I think that, that that summer, I think, taught us um, a really depressing lesson um, about... The limits of nonviolent protest to a certain extent, um, yeah. which yeah. is that what we saw was, according to some accounts, the largest protests in human history. Um, it's some discrepancy about whether maybe the Iraq War protests were bigger, but one one of, if not the largest, protest in human history, and not much came out of it, right? Yeah, like, and the places where change happened were almost exclusively the places where um, property was destroyed. Right. If you burned down some buildings, your city council made some changes. If you didn't burn down any buildings, your city council didn't make any changes. Pittsburgh, uh, the Pittsburgh police budget increased by 5% in 2020. Yeah, there's um, something to be said about that. That's, I mean, um, literally, like, it remains to be seen what kinds of legislation is actually going to pass in the state of Virginia, but to drive around downtown Richmond right now, it looks like a different place. I mean, we have actually changed, you know, one tiny little step has been taken. Like we've literally removed giant monuments and statues and things that stood as the central like focal point of it. It, it started this conversation um, where, and that was, that was a, a prime example of like, well, every historian, every, every uh, Confederate flag flying 
Proud Boy in within a hundred miles of here is losing their mind that there's spray paint on Robert E. Lee and there's all like they destroyed the property. He was like, Yeah, well, that property ain't there no more. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we at least said we at least decided as a city there are some symbols that we will now alter. We we will now remove. We will now, you know, whether it belongs in a museum or whatever, like we it won't it will no longer be a a, a place of worship. Um and uh but then, you know, we voted a, uh, I think, an idiot for governor last week and leading the charge in something that I think is, y- yeah, <laughs> it's a bit despairing to kind of end on that note. But it is it is true to say, like, yes, the it seems like the violence, it seems like the biggest, most aggressive um, actions taken were the only actions that saw any kind of change. Um, but by and large, how much change are we really seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think you saw this most clearly in Minneapolis on 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 you know on voting day. Um, there was the option of of eliminating the police department and replacing it with a department of public safety, and it didn't pass. Um, and yeah, that's that's I think I think that that can be really really disheartening um, because it does it feels like. Um, it is not possible to actually have advances in justice on these on uh, for things like racial justice. I mean, you know, here in Pittsburgh, we are a couple weeks out from you know another black man, um, uh, Rogers, being being murdered by the police. He was tased to death by the police. Um, yeah, so you know, it's it is it is it can be. I think it can feel really bleak, um, but. I think at the same time, um, you know, there is, I, I have to remain hopeful, you know, and this is what energizes my work is, is this hope that, that things can move forward, you know, that, that things are bad. And at times it feels like things are unchangeable. Um, but also Jim Crow felt unchangeable. Um, and also slavery felt unchangeable. Um, and so, you know, as, as dark as some of these, the, these times I think can feel, I think it's important to remind ourselves that to, to be seeking justice is to always be seeking that which is definitionally impossible, right? It's always impossible mm-hmm. until it happens. Um, that's the, the nature of justice. And so I think when we want to think about the kinds of protest movements that engage in things like the destruction of property, the kinds of demands they're making are impossible demands. Uh, you know, this was the, the 1968 uh, May uprising in France uh, actually had this as their line. We demand the impossible was what they were spray painting on buildings. Um, and it's because they realize it is impossible until it happens. And then you retroactively, it becomes inevitable, right? The civil rights movement, we view it as inevitable. Of course, the civil rights movement is going to happen. Slavery and in the moment, it could never have happened. And so when we think about things like, you know, justice for Black Americans, when we think about things like police or prison abolition, they are uh, demand, continuing to demand that impossible. That's where hope lies. You know, hope is the demand for the impossible. It is not the demand for Justin, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really I, I appreciate being invited. And um, I, I hope to, to be back soon. And as I said earlier, dethrone Tom Horde. That's that's really why I'm here. That's that's what I care about. That's <laughs> why. You gotta we gotta think of something else for you to talk about before he publishes another book. So you gotta do it quick. 
that that'll never happen. Uh, he publishes like no one I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Preacher, it's Jesus, a white guy, and does he really hate everyone who is gay? Does he turn up his nose before he bombs all his foes? Is he a member of the NRA? Preacher, does Jesus really care if the poor can't find enough scraps? Or does he say, suck it up, son, look at how good I've done by just pulling on my designer bootstraps? Yeah.